This morning we're continuing in the parables of Jesus, as we have been since about the new year. So we're moving ahead in the gospel story, moving closer to Holy Week and Easter in our parable this morning, which is from Matthew 25. Um, So turn there if you'd like. It's on page 702 in the Pew Bibles. And as well, there's a sermon outline in the bulletin. The bigger context of this chapter is that we're probably in Wednesday of Holy Week. The following day, Thursday, would be when the Last Supper happens and the arrest of Jesus. So we're in a very intense climate here. Uh, The hostility of the religious leaders has reached a boiling point. The disciples are are on edge and wondering all the more what's going to happen, what's going to unfold these next few days as Jesus continues to talk about being killed, what's going on. In Matthew's account, at the end of chapter 22, he writes this interesting line that Jesus had answered all of the questions and avoided all of the traps of the religious leaders so perfectly that they gave up asking him questions. They couldn't make him look bad in front of the crowds. They couldn't catch him in an incriminating word. And so they would change strategies, of course, in the next couple of days in order to seek to destroy him. So at the end of chapter 22, it kind of sets up this context where they're they're changing strategies here. And then in chapter 23, Jesus says his strongest words in the Gospels, really, where he pronounces these woes upon the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and for their for their uh, self-righteousness and all of these things to such a degree that it's obvious that there's no going back. Then in chapter 24 and 25 together, we get what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' speech on the Mount of Olives about the future and about uh, what's going to happen, some of his prophecies, the, the second coming. And towards the end of chapter 24 and into chapter 25, where we'll be this morning, Jesus begins to tell a series of parables that describe for us human reactions to this news about his return. And I've listed those in the bulletin there in the sermon outline with their, with their references because I think they're really interesting. I never, I never really noticed that there's this string of five parables. The first describes how the owner of the house didn't know when the thief was coming. And so the point is that Jesus may come when he's not expected as a surprise. The second parable describes the return of a a master who finds his servant, who he put in charge, behaving badly. And again, the master comes at a surprising time, but in this case, the master comes sooner than his servant was expecting. Our Our parable this morning, the third one, of the wise and the foolish young women, describes a bridegroom who is unexpectedly delayed, who's coming later than expected. The fourth, our parable, will be our parable for next week, which will be challenging the people of God to be productive for the kingdom until Jesus returns. And the fifth is the parable of the sheep and the goats and what happens at the very end. So taken all together, we get this interesting picture of of showing the perspectives, different perspectives on how to think about the words that Jesus is saying, that he's coming back and that uh, he will make everything new again. So we'll look together at Matthew 25, um, this parable here starting in verse 1. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all of the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both, of us, for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would make these words real in our lives and show us what they mean for us and how we are to change as a result of what we hear this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a child, I have a memory of a family story about my mother's grandfather. And I haven't asked my mother about I mean, it's been decades since I heard this story, so the details may be fuzzy. This is what I remember. This is what made an impression on me as a child. My great-grandfather had a particular encounter with a hitchhiker. Now, my great-grandfather was a businessman. He was the kind of guy who never knew a stranger, who loved to take risks. He made a small fortune, and then he lost a small fortune, and then he made a small fortune, and then he lost a small fortune in, over the course of his life. He was generous to a fault. He was always helping others. He trusted people too much. He was a dreamer. He was enterprising. He was a devout believer, and he loved to share the gospel with people. And back in the day... Uh, hitchhiking was, I guess, sort of a common and safe activity that people would do. And so he would give ride to strangers to help them out, and, give, and it would be his chance to share with a captive audience about the gospel. According to this one story, the way I remember it, he picked up a man and they began talking. And it turned out that this man also seemed to be a believer because he was talking about the end of the world. He was talking about the second coming. And there was something unusual about this man that my great-grandfather couldn't really put his finger on uh, because this guy wanted to impress upon him that the Lord was coming back soon. They reached their destination, at least as, as far as he was going. He let them out. My grandfather drove away. And as he reflected on this event further, he began to wonder, he began to think, this, what if, this guy I just was talking to, what if he was really an angel? It says in Hebrews 13, 2, that some people have entertained angels and showed hospitality to them without even knowing it. Something about this whole encounter convinced my great-grandfather that something special had happened that night and had oppressed upon him that Jesus was coming back soon. And I was never really sure what to make of this story when I heard it. My great-grandfather died in 1972. I never met him. What is soon? What does it mean that Jesus is coming back soon? Because when we read the New Testament, we find a number of passages, even from the mouth of Jesus, to indicate that he was coming back soon, that he was coming back quickly, without delay. Perhaps even during the lifetime of the apostles, it was commonly believed. There was a sense in the New Testament church 
that they were looking expectantly for Jesus to return any day. The last days were upon the world in the sending of the Holy Spirit. The last stage of God's redemptive plan had begun. Nothing else was prophesied, nothing else to look forward to except for the end, for the second coming. And so there was this great sense of anticipation. Many verses in the New Testament are oriented to this idea that Jesus is returning soon. That, again, was, what, 1,900 years ago? Before today? And yet we're still waiting? And, of course, there are many other passages that tell us that no one knows when and that it's impossible and futile and, frustra- you know, and, and pointless to speculate about the day or the hour. And there are still other passages that seem to suggest a longer wait, a delay, that the patience of God is being extended to a rebellious world, that more would repent. And so our parable gives us this scenario, sort of an unexpectedly long wait for the people of God, a long delay until the return of Christ. As we turn to the parable, we have a very simple parable this morning, a simple set of characters, a setting describing the event. Ten young women, they're unmarried, they're all waiting for the wedding party to arrive. Five are wise and five are foolish. The teaching of the parable is the contrast, of course, between the wise ones and the foolish ones. I'll reread those first few verses again. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. As we begin, as we first encounter this parable, it's right for us to notice, it's right to point out, that this is one of the many parables of Jesus that feature women prominently, which was, of course, a very unusual thing for the rabbis and the teachers of his day. It illustrates for us again, as we see so often in the Gospels, that Jesus values women, that he tells stories about women and for women, that he tells parables that women can specifically relate to, that describe their experience of living in the villages of Palestine. So it's no wonder that so many women followed him. There's something unique about that. It could have been ten men, but Jesus chose women in this particular parable as he often did, that they would that he, they would hear him, that he would connect with them. There's not a great deal of evidence about how weddings were done in Jesus' day, so scholars have different opinions kind of trying to put together the pieces of what's going on. The setting seems to be this. This is the best understanding of it as far as I've read. The wedding party and the guests have gathered at the, ho- at the home of the groom, or perhaps you know, more likely the groom's father's home, the family estate or the family Uh, home of the groom. So this group is gathered at the house, perhaps sort of spilling out into the street as they wait to meet and welcome in the couple. Meanwhile, the groom and some of his closest friends, his groomsmen, I guess you would call them, have gone to the home of the bride, and they will escort her to the party. So she lives perhaps across uh, across town in a neighboring village, and so they begin, these men begin to go on their way to get her and then to bring her back to the groom's father's house where the party will ta- and the wedding ceremony will take place. So they probably are taking the bride with them. She's riding on an animal. There's this exuberant entourage. Her family is with them. Her, her attendants have joined in as well. 
Some of the earliest versions of and translations of verse 1 included the words, and the bride, after the bridegroom. So it says in these versions, it may be note this in some of your Bibles, that um, they took their lamps and they went out to meet the, meet the bridegroom and the bride. So that would make sense that if this was originally part of the text, that would make sense that, it dis- that it's showing how they, uh, the translators knew this practice the way I'm describing it, that the groom went to gather the bride and to bring her back to his house for the ceremony. So either that phrase was included in the original or it was assumed because of the practices of the day and so some translators and some versions made it explicit by saying, by including the bride coming back with the bridegroom. Since this is a big event and a party, they don't go directly to the wedding. They would take the longest route possible so that everyone in the village would be able to greet them along the way and wish them well for their marriage. So along the way, here's the, here's the entourage, right? Here's the, the groom and his men, the bride on an animal, her family. Everyone is walking along, and all along the way, they stop and see friends and neighbors. They get uh, greeted by everyone, the well-wishers, and it gets later and later as the village stays awake to be involved in this whole process. In many cultures, weddings are never what we would call on time. In the deep south, in, in, here in America, if the wedding is at 2 p.m., I don't know if any of you have lived there, that's when the bride comes down the aisle. So you better be there a half an hour beforehand, unless you want to come down with her. If you arrive right on time, you're late. But most places in the world, perhaps, uh, the timing is much less important. A few years ago, some of our friends from Alabama had come up to a wedding for their friend that was taking place in the D.C. area, and they were staying with us. And they were telling us how confusing and strange their whole wedding experience was for them. The, the, their friend and her groom were originally from Burma. And our friends described and experienced a completely different system of time when it came to that wedding. They described how it was like no one had a watch. No one cared to be on any kind of schedule at all. There were hours of preparation and celebration and well-wishing and traditions and delays and eating and coming and going. And it wasn't just an event, but a couple days worth of events and all seemingly barely scheduled from the perspective of our American friends. Why? Well, the involvement of the community and the involvement of the family were valued much more than the promptness and the schedules. And so anything could slow down the whole event. And no one was in a hurry for the celebration to begin or for it to end. And so they just enjoyed the time together. And I think that sort of paints a more Middle Eastern picture of what, this, uh, what the parable is describing for us. The bride and the groom are, are delayed along the way so that everyone in the village can, can greet them and wish them well. In the meantime, these young women who are waiting with their lamps at the groom's house have fallen asleep, as we read in verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So what happens? The women are waiting, they're dozing, their lamps are burning. Of course, it was a very common practice for an unmarried woman to be holding a lamp everywhere she went at night to protect her reputation, sometimes for her own safety. It would be unthinkable 
for young unmarried women to be out and about without a lamp in these villages that had no other lights, no kinds of street lights. So the setup of the parable is that these women are prepared, five of them, because they brought extra oil. And the other five are not prepared for a delay because they had no container of extra oil. So the parable goes in motion here in verse 6. The announcement goes out. The couple is about, about to arrive at midnight. At midnight, right? The cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. It's midnight. The bridegroom is here. Wake everyone up. Let's go out to meet him. At this point, the foolish women discover to their horror that they don't have enough oil. Verse 7. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. They crowd around demanding. If you, if you heard that, there's no hint of explicit politeness here for the wise to share their oil. Instead, they say, give us some. Verse 9. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. It would not do at all for everyone's lamp to go out if they shared and there wasn't enough. And everyone's lamp ran out. So the foolish women leave to find oil. While it may seem strange that they're leaving to go shopping at midnight, of course, they're, we shouldn't picture stores being open. We should picture them finding the house of the guy who sells oil and knocking on the door and asking uh, to buy something and interrupting his sleep in the middle of the night. While they're gone, the party moves inside and continues. Verse 10, while they're on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrives. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Finally, the five foolish women arrive at the door, only to find this shocking turn of events in verse 11. Later the others came, also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The five here again display what seems like a demanding tone. Sir, open the door for us. We're here, finally. Boy, it's been an ordeal, but it's okay now, right? Let us in. There's an interesting parallel here with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus Pastor Steve preached on recently. Remember how the rich man demands, Abraham, tell Lazarus to serve me and to wait on me. He commands Abraham to tell Lazarus to wait on him as he has commanded people to wait on him all of his life. And he's expected, expecting that this poor man will serve him, but he's told tragically that no help is coming. In the same way, these women are demanding to be included, but the answer from inside the house is no. I don't know you. You aren't welcome. You missed your chance to come in with everyone else, and now you're left out. And it seems, I think, like such a jarring response when we think about Middle Eastern hospitality and the culture of it there in the biblical world. But the parable, that, but that's the point of the parable. It leaves us hanging, or, you know, in, the, in terms of the story, these women would likely have continued to negotiate and beg to try to get in. Did the door ever open to them? The text doesn't tell us specifically, except to say, that the whole parable hinges on the fact that at some point it became too late. That they weren't ready, they weren't prepared, and they missed their chance to 
to join the party and to enter the kingdom. This is the story of the parable. What is Jesus trying to teach us? What are the theological points that we should learn as we interact with it? First, the parable reminds us that the bridegroom will arrive. And the parable, the setup is that the bridegroom is arriving with his bride. In the New Testament language, the true bridegroom, Jesus the Messiah, is arriving for his bride, the church. Jesus is coming back for his church. No matter what the delay and the waiting, no matter how long it will take, no matter what everyone else thinks, no matter what it seems like, no matter how much we can speculate about it and be wrong about it, despite all of our predictions and date setting, the bridegroom will arrive for his bride. Jesus is coming back to fix all that's broken and all that has gone wrong with his creation and in the lives of his people. Jesus has promised to return, and he will. And believing this is not wishful thinking, it's not pie-in-the-sky dreaming, it's not hoping, it's taking God at his word, and it's living by faith in what we cannot see. It's believing what we can't see. The bridegroom will return for his bride. Second, the parable begins with the phrase, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. The whole parable, this scenario of the wise and foolish women waiting for the arrival, is showing us what it will be like when Jesus returns, at that time. And so I think by, as the parable sort of concludes, we're moving from parable world to real world. To concrete reality. To the painful realization that some will not be ready when the kingdom comes. And they will be left out. That One commentator said it this way. The kingdom has a door that can and does close. It's clear that Jesus is speaking here of his second coming. It's clear from the context. It's clear from these parables. And he's saying at that time, whenever that is, when that happens... This scenario will play out in our world. There will be foolish people who think they were a part of the kingdom, who felt like they were invited, and who are not ready. There will be wise people who are ready and who join in to the party. There are those who are ready, and there are those who are not. And if you read, and of course this can fill us, if we don't read it rightly, and if we don't read it with faith, it can fill us with a lot of anxiety. If we read about what is happening, how the, how the New Testament describes the return of Christ. The nations of the earth will mourn, Jesus said in the previous chapter in Matthew 24, 30. People will call for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them because they would rather be buried then come face to face with the fact that they didn't believe and that they weren't ready for the end of the world. And there's a great challenge, of course, in these words. There's a great urgency in them. Also, of course, as the Lord delays until he returns, this face-to-face -face meeting for us may not all be at once in earth-shaking events, but it's when we die. It's what we face individually. 
The end of Hebrews 9 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The third theological point here I think we should consider is that the parable speaks about the limits of borrowed resources. Preparation for the coming kingdom of heaven cannot be borrowed from or assigned to or shared with someone else. There's no substitution for one's readiness to commit to the kingdom of heaven. Commitment and faithfulness cannot be gained or inherited from anyone else. Each individual is responsible to choose to follow Christ or to to follow the things of this world. There's no middle ground. There's no faith by osmosis. There's no uh, situation of being kind of a believer in Christ. Sitting in the pew doesn't mean that one is ready for the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus' words. So what indeed are we to do? What are we to make of the story? Verse 13, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This verse is an echo from Matthew 24, 42, the verse that actually was right before this string of five parables. Keep watch, because you do not know. However, life is going for you right now. If it's hard, or if it's easy, if it's fulfilling, or if it's disappointing, if it's full of anxiety, or if it's full of comfort if it has the anticipation of many years ahead or just perhaps a few, we don't know what's coming. You can't know it. And Jesus' coming will be one of three things. It will either be unexpected or it will be sooner than expected or it will be later than expected. All of the logical possibilities are exhausted here, right? We don't know and we won't know in advance. And in my view, there's nothing left that's, that's, that he's waiting on except the command of the Father. That he could come at any time. I was thinking last night about this sermon and I was thinking about what if Jesus comes before I preach the sermon? <laughs> well, well, okay. So Jesus says something that sounds very simple, right? Keep watch. It's a common New Testament theme. Other passages use different words, but to mean the same thing. To stay awake, to remain alert, to have this active kind of waiting is a lifestyle of looking expectantly and living faithfully as we wait. And we trust that he's coming back soon. And how soon is soon? Well, don't ask me. (laughs) Do you ever pray for Jesus to return? The writers of the New Testament did. I I remember as a kid, never... when I was younger, not just as a kid, I remember never wanting to pray that. I remember, you know, Jesus come back after I do this or get married or something, you know, whatever. Then Jesus can return. Perhaps it's just me, but these days I think I find myself hoping that Jesus will return soon. Maybe before my Hebrew term papers due in the second week of May. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I can't wait. I mean, the renewal of all things? Every struggle will be gone? The world will be the way it should be? Can we wait for that? How do we wait and keep watch as Jesus commands us to do? 
I think, of course, we feel too much the burdens of this life by default. We're distracted from the bigger picture. We're distracted from the eternal and the truly important. To keep watch means actively trust that God is moving, that God is directing all things for his purposes and for his glory. And I think to keep watch means to say, and to be able to say, I'm ready. Jesus, I'm ready for you to come back. I want to join that kingdom. I don't want to be left out. And if you haven't ever really come to grips with that and prayed that prayer, consider it deeply in this moment, that God would make you ready to meet him according to his will, whenever that happens. It requires us to trust in him that he'll forgive our sins and that he'll bring us into the kingdom. Because what's offered to us right now is an open door. Right now, the door is open, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that reminds us what it means to be people in a fallen world who are looking for a world to come. Help us to bring that message to those around us each day. That there's hope, uh, that you are at work, and that you have done amazing things in our lives and in, the, and in our church. Father, help us to be uh, good stewards of these words, to feel the urgency of them, to make the choice to follow you if we haven't before. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.